You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. This episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast is brought to you by CollegeCast. At CollegeCast, we empower student voices by helping college students start their very own 10-episode podcast show. Visit www.collegecastpodcasts.com to find out more or check out the awesome podcasts that are coming soon. Welcome to episode 138 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On this episode, we sat down with Mark Rockwell. Mark works with business owners that are frustrated by their inability to scale up and become more profitable. He often helps business owners create their vision and to implement an operating platform that helps business owners to build a healthy, thriving company. Mark is both an attorney and entrepreneur. He's started and grown several companies throughout his career, and he struggled with the same setbacks and frustrations that all business owners experience. Mark is here with us today to talk about the importance of core values in your organization, how you can improve your communication and time management skills, and how you can ensure that your business is on the path to growth and success. Here are the self-made strategies of Mark Rockwell. All right, so Mark, you're you're both a uh, attorney and an entrepreneur, and now you really work with business owners for the most part who are frustrated by their ability to scale, as we said in your bio. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you get into this coaching consulting role that you're currently in? Well, you know, Tony, I would say uh, I've uh, actually adopted a phrase called embrace wisdom wherever you find it. And what I mean by that is, interestingly, uh, oh gosh, it's probably been five years ago, maybe six years ago now, I was having a breakfast meeting with a young man that I had been mentoring Mm -hmm. for 10 years, and we would have breakfast several times a year. And one day he came to breakfast with this book called Traction by Gino Wickman. And he said, gosh, you know, here's a great book. I think you'd like it. And of course, he knew I was a, a avid reader and told me all about it. We talked and I went back to my office and I quickly ordered it on Amazon. Unlike the olden days where you would have written it down on a piece of paper and stuck it in your <laughs> shirt pocket. And then by the time you made it to Barnes and Noble, you would have lost it. And oh, and by the way, they wouldn't have it on the shelf anyway. Right. Good point. So I ordered it. It came, I read it, I thought it was great. Uh, I called him up and said, boy, that really was a good book. And he said, did you really like it? And I said, yeah, actually I really did. So he said, well, would you like to talk to the fellow who helped us, uh, is helping us implement um, EOS in our company? And I said, gosh, sure. Anyway, long story short, met the uh, implementer. We implemented it in our company. We, at the time it was about, oh, we probably had about six, 700 employees. Uh, it was a healthcare company that I had organized. And what I recognized is over the next uh, six months to a year, things just started running better. And, and it wasn't dramatic in the sense of like flipping on a light switch and suddenly one day you're running rough and the next day you're running smooth. It was really, I use the illustration much like watching steam disappear from the mirror after you've gotten out of the shower. You're standing there brushing your teeth and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I can see my face. Interesting. And so at any rate, uh, things started running a lot better. Uh, felt like we were making a lot better progress, uh, more focused, more on task. Our bottom line started to improve. 
And then when I sold my company in mid-2019, I thought, gosh, I have no desire to retire. I think I'm going to work with other emerging companies to help them benefit. Because quite honestly, Tony, if there's anything I'm irritated by, it's something it's that somebody didn't share that information with me 10 years before because there are important decisions and things, frankly, I would have just done differently. Right. Makes a lot of sense. So what were some of the changes that you made initially that had such a not so drastic effect, but a drastic effect in the aggregate, I guess? Well, you know, it really starts out with things that seem pretty simple. And that is, um, do you have the right people in the right seats? Uh, what are your core values and what is your vision? And, and frankly, I don't like the word core values, particularly not because it's not a good uh, term, but because I don't think it really conveys what we're talking about. I like to say that core values are really core behaviors or core qualities and uh, and that that core values should be a verb, not a noun, meaning unless and until you can take them and turn them into action, they're not really worth much to you. So as a company, when you ask about, well, what are some of the things that started to make a difference? Once you identify those top three or four core behaviors that you find to be fundamental to the success of your company, um, an example would be uh, there in here in the Northwest, there's a company called Les Schwab Tire and it's legendary as far as its service. When you drive into a Les Schwab store, before you can even get out of your car, a young man will come loping across the parking lot, meet you at your car and say, oh, well, good morning. What can I do for you today? That's called hustle. That is a core quality. Well, as you can imagine, Tony, unless you interview and hire for hustle, mm -hmm. you're not going to have hustle in the people that you hire. And so once you identify that as being an important behavior, an important quality, and it's one of the top three or four that you're focused on, then and only then will you continue to build a staff that displays those qualities. And, and that's one of the lessons I recognized was we were a high service company. We were all about caring. But I don't know that up until that point, we had really identified those behaviors that we wanted to hire for. And that was an example of a fundamental change. Interesting. And, you know, I've asked this question before on the show. So I asked Nick Bayer, who's the CEO of Saxby's, which is a, a coffee organization. Uh, they consider themselves a hospitality company and they do a lot of student experiential learning programs for college students. They'll actually have some college students come in and run their cafes for them. And I asked Nick how he hires for culture, something along similar lines. I think it was something along the lines of how you hire for the corporate, your core values are very similar to what you're talking about. So in, in your mind, what do you think is the appropriate strategy? How do we distill that out of somebody else when we're sitting across the table? And quite frankly, if I, if I can be frank, I mean, we've all been on job interviews. They're usually not the setting where everyone's showing their cards, let's say, right? Nine times out of 10, people are acting like some other version of themselves that's a lot more prim and proper than maybe they would act like in a more in a less formal setting. So how do we do that? How do we effectively, how does somebody who's listening to this 
go out tomorrow and and change their organizational culture by focusing on these values? What what can we do to implement that? Well, first of all, it's important to identify, in my opinion, not more than three top behaviors or qualities you're looking for. Because if you, I mean, obviously, if you say, well, gosh, these are the top 20 qualities or behaviors we're looking for, you've so diluted what you're looking for that it becomes kind of um, muddled mm -hmm. and unclear. Mm -hmm. So if you say, um, these are the three things that every employee must have. And let's say it's In-N-Out Burger, or let's say it's a tire business where it's service, it's important. One of those top qualities may be an eternally friendly attitude. I mean, if, if this person is not consistently, positively friendly, if they don't have hustle, if they don't show up on time for the job and don't seem to have this energy and this electricity, they're probably not a person that belongs on our on our crew. So to answer your question, Tony, about how do you interview for that, clear, closely, or I should say, understandably, it's going to be more difficult if you're hiring for an entry-level position where you have a lot of people. But if you are hiring for a more senior position, it's a, a little easier in that you need to get out of the interview environment. An example would be... Uh, there's a story that Patrick Lencioni tells in one of his books. Patrick's one of my favorite authors, and he talks about this, um, this business person who every time he would interview someone, he would take them out to lunch. And he would arrange with the waiter ahead of time to mess up the order. Because he really wanted to see how this person would react. Was he respectful? Right. Was he, was he rude? Was he unkind? Was he uh, arrogant? Those are things that people, when they're out of what they view to be an interview environment, suddenly their real personality comes out. So I guess in, in simplest form, uh, one of the best ways to do what you've just asked about is get the person out of the interview environment. Take them to a ball game. Take them, take them on a backpack trip to do something completely different Interesting. where you can see over a period of an hour or two or even maybe a day or two if you were on a backpack trip. Do they help? Do they show up? Are they enthusiastic or are they kind of a, a minimalist that they let everybody else pick up after them? So that, that would be my thought. Interesting. And I, I like your strategy there because you're you're also putting them in a position where you almost have to be yourself one way or the other, right? If you're in a ball game or you, you can be a little bit more prim and proper than normal, but you'll still be in a different environment that's going to kind of shake down some of those uh, barriers to, to truthfulness or to accuracy, I guess, when we're looking for, looking for a candidate for our organization. That's, that's excellent. So a, a lot of times you also have worked with organizations that have been, you know, working for a long period of time and maybe stalled a little bit, right? Or hit a ceiling. So mm -hmm. what, what are some of the pieces of advice or what, give us an example maybe of what, what that looks like, what, what the telltale signs are that we should be looking for. And what is, what is your advice for implementing sort of a, a change in your operating system that steers back towards growth and increased profitability? Actually, Tony, every organization 
will hit the ceiling. It, it isn't right. It isn't a sign of a bad company. It isn't a sign necessarily of a sick company. It's really to use a very simple example. Uh, you know, when we were kids, we all outgrew our shoes. When we were growing up, we all outgrew our bicycles. So we were constantly growing and needing to shed what we had in the past. And in fact, quite honestly, uh, as a kid, you were pretty proud when you stepped up to the next bicycle. It, it showed that you had some significant growth. And so to have what I would call a hit the ceiling or a stall out is not a bad sign. It's just a, an, an acknowledgement or a recognition of growth. And the sooner we can realize it, identify it, and embrace it, and then say, okay, it's time that we step back and rethink how we're organized, the sooner you can get on with growth. One of the reasons most companies have a er fairly early stall out, whether it's in the third or fourth year, is because quite honestly, they've actually never really organized themselves. And what I mean by that is most entrepreneurs are, in my opinion, above average in intellect, meaning they're pretty bright people. They're certainly highly motivated and they'll start a business and just go like heck. And if they've got a good product, they're fortunate that they get some sales, they hire another employee, get some more sales, hire another employee. And before you know it, they're up to eight, 10, 12, 15 people. What happens, not surprisingly, is the informal organization of a two or three person company quickly falls apart. Right. When you have two or three or even four people, you all go to lunch together, you have breakfast together, you're always talking. If the left hand knows what the right hand's doing. And as entrepreneurs and owners, you know every customer, you know every part number, you know every check that's been written, you know every issue and you're able to deal with it. But once it gets beyond four or five people, and, and sometimes even when it's at four or five people, problems become exponential pretty quickly. And a lot of it is because there is no system, there's no process, it's all informal. And I'm really always quick to say, you can't scale until you have consistency. And you won't have consistency until you have some form of process. Without some form of process, and I know that's a term that probably makes most entrepreneurs go, oh, right, yuck, right, systems right. and processes. Oh, that sounds so corporate. Right. They like the ability to pivot. They like the ability to sort of be able to move quickly when, when you need to make a decision, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. that's, I mean, that's why I'm, I can hear them say, well, that's why I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want process. Right. I don't want systems. In fact, I had a partner who used to say, oh, we don't want to be cookie cutter. And yet one of my very favorite uh, advisors said, actually, you ought to embrace cookie cutter. You ought to embrace cookie cutter because, you know, cookie cutter means you're going to get a consistent cookie. And that's really good when you're trying to scale. And you can breathe into the term cookie cutter either positive attributes like consistent, predictable, um, always the same, or you can breathe into it words like boring, unimaginative, uh, not personalized. Right. But I like the idea of, of cookie cutter from the standpoint of most businesses, frankly, wing it. And that only works. You can only wing it when you're a very small organization. Uh, an illustration I use, which uh, is uh, kind of graphic, is uh, 
I, I can envision two young guys going to start a business and they go to a trade show and they come back and they have 10 cards and they throw them in a box and you walk in and say, hey, where's that Harry's contact information? And I, I shuffle through them real quickly. And of course, I find it because there's only 10 cards in the box. Right. Five years later, though, there's 5,800 cards in the box and they're just in a big pile. And when you walk in and say, hey, where's that Harry's contact information? I rifle through them for about 20 minutes and in red face say, I know it's in here somewhere, but I can't find it. Well, metaphorically speaking, that's kind of the way the business is running. None of the systems, none of the processes, nothing has been ever organized. And so how do you make it work? You just put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into it and you get very tired. So right. when you hear yeah. people saying, gosh, Tony, I've never worked this hard. We've been in business five years now and I'm working harder now than when we got started and I'm enjoying it less. That's probably your first tip that they've hit the ceiling. That's a that's a great point. But I, I have a an interesting thing that just popped into my head. Well, hopefully it's interesting to the listeners. We'll find out. But uh, uh, I have a, an interesting thought that just popped into my head that I want to kind of bounce off of you. I think part of the issue is when we talk about these abstract concepts, and particularly in the West, and I'll say West with air quotes, um, for those of you who are watching on video, you're seeing me hold up air quotes. Um, for the, For those... In the West, in particular, I think we're always looking for a singular solution, right? There must be one way to do things. And it's either we, we, you know, ride by the seat of our pants and bootstrap the company and stay really flexible and with the ability to pivot, or at some point, you hit a point in the organization where it has to switch. And I think if you really study these things as an observer, often you'll find that it's kind of like uh, I, I learned to drive a stick very early on in my life, a manual transmission. And when you're learning to drive a manual, it's very jerky and clunky and you don't really know what you're doing and you, you might let the car cut out on you a couple times. Um, but as you learn, you realize that it's the balance. It's the balance of feathering the throttle with the same sort of balancing the point where the clutch begins to engage. And, and if you once you get it down, it, it becomes almost second nature. You don't even really have to think about it. Your foot, your feet, both both feet just kind of go to where they need to be. Right. And and you kind of pick up this second nature. And I think running a business is often like that. It's sometimes you have to give it a little bit more throttle and a little less clutch and kind of get things going a little faster. And at other times, you got to, you know, get on the clutch and get off the throttle so that you can switch gears or do something else. And then at other times, even there's this third sort of abstract point where we're just somewhere in between to keep things going right, to keep the momentum going. And I think that part of the reason is that from a philosophical perspective, we often look at things, especially when we have these abstract conversations about, you know, how to grow a business. What do, what do we need to do to strategically implement? And it's hard. I mean, it's it's the as a lot of people say, entrepreneurship is the toughest, toughest sport in the world. And and I'm beginning to agree with that. The more endeavors I, I get myself into as well and the more clients I work with on on my law firm side as well. And I think what you see is. You're right in the sense that often people put themselves into sort of one silo. 
And the reason that you see teams that have two people at the helm of the organization or more that are in control of the organization and one is the really imaginative idea person and the other is the really type A super organized person and that sort of what you would think is like an odd couple or, or a, a buddy cop movie works so well for most organizations is because you get both and you don't have one at any one individual time. And I think even as an organization grows, for instance, I just, um, I've been kind of digging into the Netflix audiobooks. I listened to Mark Randolph's audiobooks and then um, recently listened to the one uh, by Reed Hastings, which is more about the culture of Netflix and how they implemented this culture that was completely out of this world, different at the time. Now a lot of organizations, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of organizations are now implementing that same culture. And in a lot of ways, what you're seeing is an organization that's just saying, do what's right for Netflix. And they're getting better performance out of people. And they're getting people that want to stay. They're encouraging their employees to go out and interview with other companies. And then they're saying, if Google calls you up and says, you know, a software developer for Netflix, for example, if Google calls you up and says, we want to hire you and we'll pay you top dollar, go to that interview, find out what top dollar is and come back and give us a chance to match that. That's, that's so out of this world. And, and a lot of people would think that's so unstructured. How can it work? But I think it's because of those things, because you have this balance of, there are some things that we need to do. You know, obviously, Netflix is extremely organized to be as big as they are, right? Of course. And to your point, there are things that they've cookie cutter systematized, right? They've, they've turned streaming, which was ultimately disruptive, into now a cookie cutter business that a lot of organizations are trying to copy. And by the way, none has been as successful, not even close, right? You watch HBO Max, for example, and that system fails all the time. And they're newer than Netflix so uh, or Blockbuster, which famously, if you've never seen the documentary uh, Netflix versus the world, that's a great one where, where they talk a lot about, you know, their company and, and, and their fight with Blockbuster. But you see this and I think it's because I've really I really sit there and, and kind of nerd out about this stuff and study it on 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 a an acute level and think about this and listen to all of these audiobooks on a constant basis. And I think what's starting to dilute into my brain is the common trend is organizations that have some people who are really type A and other people who are really just, you know, right brain thinkers who are saying, you know, no, we have to, they come into the, the office every day with new ideas and there's somebody that has to lock them in and rein them in. And those organizations are the ones that have a higher likelihood, not only of success, but of avoiding stall out or hitting a ceiling. And I know that was a long winded way to, to kind of implant that. But what do you think of that? Well, I think that uh, that is absolutely right. The the harmonizing uh, aspect there or one of the harmonizing harmonizing aspects is that there is real clarity in the company as to who they are, what they are, why they are, and where they're going. And if there's a shortcoming that many companies have is they can tell you what they do, they can tell you how they do it, they can't really tell you why they do it. Interesting. And and the why, and, and you know, the, the, the famous book by Simon Sinek, uh, Start With The Why, is really a compelling concept 
because that is the under that's the underbelly or that is the that is the pulse of the organization. And if you have agreement amongst people as to why they're doing what they're doing, then the type A's and the not type A's can can rally around that common theme. But if there's no agreement on why they're working for this company or what the vision of the company is, then you really don't have a North Star. And that's where companies start to really uh, fall into trouble. Yeah. And you, you talk about this frequently. You talk about how vision and values are really the first steps in creating a winning business. And I think that that's exactly at the core. I know we keep using core, but no better word than core, right? At the center of the concept of vision and values, right? That's, that's the why. That's how you get to your why. It's what are, what's this big, hairy, audacious goal? You know, people use that term all the time as well that we're trying to get to. And what are the, the principles that we don't want to let go of on that path, right? Is that, would you agree with that? And, and do you have any other additional advice to developing that why? Well, I like the word purpose. And, uh, you know, you can talk about mission and vision and Frankly, I don't know that I'm smart enough to differentiate between those. I, I get myself confused. Well, sure. Is this mission? Is this, what is it? But I can tell you what purpose means. And so in the last company I started, which was a healthcare company, uh, we really agonized over that for a period of time. You know, we first wrote our business plan and we had a pretty pro forma sounding um, statement that, you know, is, was not memorable certainly wasn't something you'd memorize and something you would remember. And I recognized after reading Simon's book, Start With The Why, that we really needed to know what our why was. We really needed to know what our why was. And so we spent, oh, probably at that point, at least two to three months and not only really thought about it, and I say two to three months, meaning you know you work on it and then you get back together and then you work on it again and you kind of just let it distill and, and percolate and what we came up with, we were at the time, it was a healthcare organization that I'd started that provided 24 seven care for people suffering from Alzheimer's. And so we came up with the statement of to protect, engage and love people living with memory loss. And it was based upon a hypothetical story of of a, a daughter or a son showing up at one of our communities and I'll make this story short saying you know I, I just dad's not safe he's wandering uh, he needs to be he needs to be in a safe place so that was the, that's where the protect came from and the next stage in the story is I know he's not 30 but I don't want him just sitting in a in a lazy boy, I want him to, I want him to be involved. I want him, I want his life to be as full as possible given his limitations. So that was the word engage. Uh, first of all, thought in terms of being active, well, the word active didn't seem to be sufficient because that just kind of means physically being, uh, moving around and all, where is engagement, emotional engagement, mental engagement, physical engagement, bi-directional between staff, family, and so forth. And then the last part of the story is, as this imaginary story comes to an end, is the person who is talking to us says, as they turn to leave, and I know this is a lot to ask, but could you just love him? And so we thought, boy, that really is why we're in business. We're here to protect, engage, and love. 
And that became our why. And as you can see, it's been several years since I've been in that business. I still remember that because it's something that was memorable. It was motivational. And it really was the essence of what we were all about. So I, to me at least, believe that there's a lot of power in starting with your why. It doesn't mean that that's the end all be all, but that's a great place to start. Oh, that's great. I, I think that's really interesting and a, a great story to a great example, a great anecdote to show what that is. And the interesting thing is that if you work backwards from that, and this is something, by the way, I think for anyone who's listening, if you feel like you're a little confused by this or you're still trying to say, well, what do they mean by their why? These are things that, like you said, sometimes like uh, like Mark said, Sometimes you stumble upon these things. Sometimes it takes time to get to your why. You just have to keep thinking about it. It's not something that's going to be easy. And in five minutes, you're just going to jot down your why. These are deep, philosophical, core value type of things that you come up with about your organization. And if you have a team, these are things that you should routinely talk about with your team. You know, why are we doing this every day? Why are we putting in the extra hours, especially if you're doing it as a, what the kids call side hustle these days? Um, th those are important questions. Your intention, right? That's why am I doing this? Why instead of watching Netflix for three to six hours or why instead of going off to the beach, am I working during vacation? for this. And sometimes those are the same reasons that people leave, for example, the legal industry or, or other jobs that, uh, that can be taxing sometimes, right? Because you come to the realization, this does not align. This does not resonate with who I am on an energetic level. So you've worked with a lot of businesses, obviously, over the years, even your own businesses as an attorney as well. What are, you know, what's the one thing that every business can do that will immediately make things operate more smoothly for them that you've observed in your experience? You know, it's something that is really simple. It costs virtually nothing. And, uh, and a person can start it tomorrow. It's called the morning stand-up meeting. And the leadership team circles up for eight to 10 minutes every morning. You don't sit down and you only talk about three things. What I did yesterday, what I'm doing today and where I'm stuck. And the purpose of that is so that the leadership team, four or five people understand that uh, there's communication among other things. They, they understand what other team members are working on it really facilitates communication. And among other things, as an example, if I said at three o'clock this afternoon, oh gosh, I really need to talk to Tony. Well, I'm not gonna go over and disturb him. I'm gonna see him tomorrow morning anyway at our stand-up meeting. So number one, I don't interrupt myself. I don't interrupt you because I know I'm gonna see you tomorrow morning. So it facilitates that. And I'll tell you another benefit of the meeting, not only does it functionally make bring the leadership team together because now they feel as though there really is this rhythm. But I had a, a meeting yesterday with a law firm I work with and, and they were commenting themselves just as an aside. They said, you know, it's really interesting. When we have this morning stand-up meeting, and by the way, I would advise anyone that does it, pick a fun name, like for instance, if you're a law firm, maybe you call it the morning brief. 
you don't start at eight o'clock. You start at 7.57 so that it's a very distinct time. You don't, uh, you don't, ref you don't forget when it is. It only lasts 14 minutes. But what they were saying is, you know, what we have found is not only does everybody now really punctually show up every morning because we know we have that stand up. Other people in the office see that we have this rhythm. We have this cadence. And there, it's a young firm that is trying to become more disciplined, more, more organized. And they, they were effusive about the benefits that they're seeing in just a matter of a couple of months, personally and organizationally, by implementing that one very simple, no-cost technique. Very interesting. And you mentioned communication in there. And I think that's interesting because it does kind of open the door to get people talking. But in that setting, it can be it can cause some apprehension for those who maybe are having a tougher time of it. So what do you think are really the essentials to open up communication within an organization and make sure that you have great communication and that when people are coming to that morning meeting, they're not feeling apprehension. They're feeling a freedom to speak with their peers. You know, communication is in itself is uh, <clears throat> not only is it a fundamental skill or a fundamental quality. It um, it can be very it, it can be rather complicated in that we tend to talk in acronyms. We tend to make assumptions about our message that the other person understands what we're saying. And as a broadcaster, if you're the person or the person broadcasting, initiating the mission or the message, it is the person who is speaking or writing the email that has the obligation to recognize whether or not the recipient understands the message. I think we oftentimes feel like, well, I'll just throw it out there and they can kind of rifle through the message and, and figure it out. That is a number one violation of good communication. We, as the broadcaster of a message, a sender of a message, own it. And it's our responsibility to make certain that the recipient understands it. And I believe in our modern society, myself included, we get pretty sloppy about that. We tend to say a lot of things, do a lot of things, send a lot of messages that are incomplete kind of lazy, actually, and expect that the recipient is going to figure it out. Well, if they have a problem with it, they'll call me. No, that's that's really not good communication. So if I were to, uh, I don't know that I've answered your question, Tony, but going into the morning meeting, it's not an in-depth communication. I mean, it's not something where you're drilling deeply because you're only there for seven or eight minutes. But that is why you keep it very limited to what you did yesterday so people know what you're working on, what you're doing today, and where you're stuck. And out of that will come other, that will precipitate other, what I'd call sidebar conversations afterward. But if I were to give any advice about how to make those meetings successful, it would be keep them short and keep them simple. Because otherwise, you're going to go down a lot of rabbit holes and people are going to feel like it's no longer an eight to 10 minute meeting. It's really a waste of my time because we're getting into so much other stuff. And that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to have a reset every morning to create a team spirit, a sense of connection and, and a sense of communication. 
No, that's a great point. And I think that's a lot of times why people look at corporate meetings with such disdain is because of the fact that a lot of times a lot of time is wasted. You know, you set a meeting for an hour to meet with your team. The first 15 minutes, everybody's air quotes, catch up talk. It's disorganized. Maybe you didn't even send an agenda, which I've been guilty of. We, we've all been guilty of the, each of these peccadilloes, if you will. Um, but what do you think is the secret to effective time management? And I know you've obviously you were a lawyer, so that's you have to have good time management skills to be a good attorney. And then entrepreneur additionally, just kind of piling on and, and building up your, your time management skills. So what, what do you consider the, the secret, or at least what was the secret for you to maintain effective time management? In a word, you have to be very intentional. And unless you're very intentional about your time blocking and about your scheduling and about your own personal discipline of controlling your emails and your phone, you will not have time management. And so there are two or three things. Uh, I mean, there's any number of techniques a person can and should use. But number one is um, you need to not be looking at your email constantly. So I always advocate or encourage each of my clients to set up a schedule where they don't look at their email until noon. They, they use those early hours of the day when they're high productivity to simply get into the tasks, prioritize the top three items that you must get done that day and differentiate those from miscellaneous tasks. Uh, don't, don't merge all of your items from picking up your laundry and dropping off some shoes at the shoe repair in the same list as get the Johnson brief out by nine o'clock this morning. So you start out by, first of all, I believe either at the end of the prior day or first thing that morning, taking 15 to 20 minutes and in a very deliberate way, organizing your day. Don't just let it happen. Evaluate the most important items that you absolutely positively must get done and write them down one, two, and three. Put your miscellaneous tasks on a separate list and you get to those when you can get to them. Number three, don't check your email till noon. Number four, have someone if possible who assists you field as many of your emails as possible and have them respond and only leave those emails for you that you absolutely must respond to. Perhaps the biggest, biggest intrusion in an office are colleagues. I come in and interrupt you, you come in and interrupt me. Right. So negotiating something with your colleagues, if you will, uh, when my door is shut, it means I'm in deep think time. Please do not interrupt me. Send me, uh, slip me a note. I promise you I will be back to you before the end of the day. I'll give you as much time as you want and need, but please don't interrupt me. So there's some fairly simple little techniques like that that are pretty helpful. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that life becomes suddenly easy, but it does mean that you will have much greater control over your time. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much. This was a very informative episode. Really appreciate your time. Where can people find you if they want more information? Well, they're welcome to go to my, uh, either send me an email at mark 
at coachrockwell.com or they can go to my website, coachrockwell.com. Great. Mark, thank you very much again. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Tony. I enjoyed it. Have a great day.